I'd like for you to turn to the 8th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. I never cease to be amazed at how relevant the Scripture is. You've, you've heard people say, well, you need to make the Bible relevant. You don't need to make the Bible relevant. It's already relevant. And we just need to understand it because it speaks to every issue of life, and tonight is no exception. Is he a good boss? That's the question from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Being a good boss is neither easy nor accidental. The people who make um, good bosses, the people who are joy to follow, are rare. And I have a feeling tonight that there are a great many of you who do not look forward to facing your boss tomorrow because it's rare to find somebody who is a joy to follow. I think, I think that uh, bosses move uh, between two extremes. On one extreme, on one end, are what I call incompetent superiors. They're not qualified. They're part of what is called now the Peter Principle. They, they're totally unqualified for where they are. They're hard to work for. They're frequently negative. They're insecure. And that's the way they cover up for their insecurity. Incompetent superiors. On the other end of the extreme are what you could call intolerant superiors. They're eminently qualified, probably overqualified. They're perfectionistic and demanding. They're workaholics. And they believe that their life revolves around their work and that yours should too. And they're hard driving and hard charging. They are intolerant superiors. A cartoon presented this little fourth grade boy going nose to nose with his intolerant teacher. And behind them in the background is this chalkboard with about four unsolved math problems on it. And the little boy is saying, I'm not an underachiever, you're an overexpector. <laughs> and, and you've seen some of those overexpectors. They, they come in many models. Sometimes they are teachers. Sometimes they are coaches who scream and berate their players. Sometimes they are parents. Sometimes they are husbands and wives or bosses. And sometimes they're preachers. And these people cannot live without the ultimate. They can accept nothing less than the ultimate. Now, just wait a minute. You're thinking, now this really, this sermon doesn't really relate to a whole lot of people. But just a minute. There's not a single one of you here whose life in some way is not touched by those who are in authority. Now, in case you go home tonight and wonder how I arrived at this, the eyes of is that really what this text says? I think it be, it's important that I talk with you in a brief explanation of the, of the structure, the thrust of the structure. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, as we've already um, said many times, is a journal, a diary of a man in search of life's meaning. It's his memoirs. In the first six chapters of this book, this man is on his face. He's, 
All around him is misery and trouble. And he's cursing God and he's clenching his fist. He is miserable. And he screams out against God and he records what he's what he says, and it's just the story of a man who feels that life has nothing for him. But at the end of the sixth chapter, something happens to this man. He, he kind of comes to the end of himself, and he begins to make a turn. There is a shift in this whole book of Ecclesiastes, beginning at chapter 7. And we begin to find a word beginning to appear, and it becomes the predominant word of the last half of this book. It's the word wise or wisdom. And he begins to find wisdom. It's a total reversal of, of life now for him. And we discovered last Sunday night what wisdom is in the biblical sense. Wisdom is the God-given ability to see life objectively and handle life with stability. And he begins to see life in a different way. He begins to see it objectively and he begins to handle life with stability. And he begins chapter 7 with these marvelous proverbs and they just flow out of him. And we looked at some of them when we studied the first part of chapter 7. You can't outline proverbs, you just see what they say. And then the last part of chapter 7 is what we discovered last Sunday night, how to put wisdom to work, how to make it work. I mean, we talk about wisdom, but what is, how, does it, how does it work out itself in life? And we said that wisdom does three things. It brings balance to life. It saves us from the extremes of being super pious on one end and excessively wicked on the other. And wisdom, this... God-given ability to see life objectively and handle it with stability, give strength to life, to handle criticism, etc. And then finally, this wisdom gives insight. And still, this wisdom needs to be fleshed. Is there a model of it? Is there an example of it? And that's the way God deals with us. As a matter of fact, God never deals with us in an intellectual vacuum. He always does not leave us with an, abstract, uh, with an abstract thought or principle, but gives us an example of that in flesh. For example, watch this. He talks to us about faith, and then he shows us Abraham and Sarah, and they enfleshed that faith. And he talks to us about forgiveness, and he gives us the example of that in Joseph. He enfleshes this principle, this abstract thought of forgiveness. And so we ask ourselves, is there, a, for instance, with regard to wisdom, is there some way that that can be enfleshed so I can see it? And that's what verses 1 through 9 of chapter 8 are. The picture, it is a picture, it is the, the fleshed out, the living out of wisdom in practical ways, and it's enfleshed in this person who has authority. This is a boss he's talking about here, or a manager, calls him a king, in that context, a CEO, a foreman, or somebody who has authority over, another, over other people. And you say, now how do you know that? Well, look at verses 2 and 4 and 5, and he talks about the command of a king or one in authority, and he talks about this royal command. And then in verse 9, he talks about one who 
exercises authority over another. So I want to put this in the context of a boss or a CEO or a foreman or somebody who has authority. And if you're one of those people tonight, this passage is for you. And if you live under one of them, then you're going to be interested in what we find. Because I believe that there are in this passage five characteristics, five characteristics of a good leader. Now that applies in every area of life. It applies to parents trying to parent children. It applies to teachers. Five characteristics of a good leader. Number one, he has a clear mind. Look at verse 1, the A part of verse 1. Who is like the wise man? That's a rhetorical question that really does not seek an answer because he answers the question himself in the next phrase, the next half. Who is like a wise man? You can insert the one. He it is who knows the interpretation of a matter. And that word interpretation is the key word there. It means solution of a matter. And it refers to somebody who can see through the mystery to the conclusion of it. It refers to somebody who has the ability to find out why and know the answers why. It's not so much that he knows the how-tos as he knows the whys. So that a good leader is a person who is able to see through the mystery to the conclusion or solution. He is a person who knows why. Somebody said that a person who knows how to do something will usually always have a job, but he'll usually work for the person who knows why. The person who knows why is the person who makes a good leader. He's a person who is able to get a handle on the philosophy behind the matter. Now, I, I suppose that in the church there could be no place where that is more important. You know, to have a leader who is able to know why, there's always, you know, always people who say, why do we have to have a, you know, a youth ministry? And why do we have to have a college ministry? And why the single adult ministry? And why all this money for this and for that? And if there is a leader who is able to, be, is able to know the reasons, to know the answers to why, and holds his ground because he sees the solution of the matter. You've got strong leader there. It, it's true in, with parents. Do you have a philosophy for your home? Do you know why you're doing what you're doing? All right, the second uh, aspect, characteristic of a good leader is found in the last ver part of verse 1. A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his face to beam. Now here is the characteristic. He has a cheerful disposition. Does that surprise you? A good leader is a person who is, has a beaming face. He has a cheerful disposition. Don't you love to work for somebody like that? And he says that wisdom causes this stern face to shine. And the picture there of the stern face is this, you know, tough, you know, negative uh, mentality, this 
flat, uh, uh, non-dynamic person. You know what I think of when I, when, I, when, I, when I hear that? I think of an NFL football coach. <laughs> Did you ever watch Don Coriel, who used to coach for the, coach the uh, San Diego Chargers? My, my son and I had this running joke about him. He always looked like he had a stomachache. You know, he just, you know, there's a scowl on his face all the time. I'm sure he was a great guy, but, but he looked like he, he had something going on in, inside his stomach, you know. He's just cramps or something, you know. You know, have you ever seen Bobby Knight smile, you know? And, 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 and uh, uh, Don Shula, you know, the great coach. But I was watching a little bit of Super Bowl day, and he, they had him on there. First time I ever seen him smile in my whole life. I was, it ruined my whole sermon, you know. I've never seen the guy smile. And, 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 and it's this picture of these stern people. I want my kids, if they don't remember anything else about me, I want them to know when I die, when, I, when they kind of sum up my life and draw the bottom line on it, I want them to believe that I had a good time while I was alive. That I had fun. And they're probably not going to remember a thing about what I say. They probably won't remember a line in the sermon I preached, but I hope they do remember that I brought a laugh or two to life. And if they can say, man, my dad used to preach his heart out, that would be great. If they can say, boy, he, he, he ministered from his heart, that's wonderful. But it's not as important to me as when I die, they can say, I know my dad loved life. And he laughed. Good old, you know, belly laughs every now and then. You know, if you, if you want to have some fun, you just come to some of our staff meetings. Right, gang? I mean, we, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to work here. All right, third characteristic is found in verses 2 through 4. A good leader has a discreet mouth. A discreet mouth. Read it with me. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Now this passage is addressed to employees in the first place. What he's saying is this, be loyal to your boss, be faithful, don't talk about him, don't jump the ship, and for God's sake use a little discretion. He said, now you just don't go marching into the office of the CEO and ask him, what are you doing this for? You know, what are you doing this? There are some things that's just not in your business to know about, you see. Sometimes it kind of it gives me a, rubs the feathers when I hear, my, you know, some employees, some people at work, you know, with me, maybe under me, say, well, you know, I'm the last one. He never tells me anything. There's some things that the, that the leader has no responsibility to tell, see. Use a little discretion. This passage is always, is also addressed to the employer. Notice the twofold reference to the command command, watch this, or the word of the king. Now what he's saying is this, get this, what comes out of your mouth is the tone of the place where you work. And what you say and how you say it sets the tone of the place where you work. And in, 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 in reality he's just saying, you know, you know use a little tact. 
Somebody said that tact is the ability to avoid needless offense. It's the dexterity and skill in managing affairs. I like this better, best of all. He said, tact is the ability to make someone feel at home when you wish he were, you know. <laughs> but what is your tongue like? What is your tongue like when that person is not around you? A discreet mouth. Fourth, a keen judgment. A good leader has a keen judgment. K-E-E-N. He who keeps, verse 5, a royal command, experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? Now let me say three things about this. Keen judgment. Say, first of all, you have a royal command. Now watch this. The person who is a leader needs to understand that God has gifted him from that, for that. And that gift is from God. It's a royal command. And the provisions he has, the ability that he has... Is, is from God. He, he, he gives him the ability to know when and where to do certain things, that special provision. And he says that that, that keen judgment manifests itself in stability under pressure. Look at verse 6. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight when a man's trouble is heavy upon him. Now watch this carefully. I believe that a good leader is somebody who can act under pressure. Now I don't know how you felt about Mr. Reagan. I couldn't care less. I have absolutely no hidden agenda in this statement. Not promoting Republican Party. I couldn't care less how you voted and all that kind of stuff. I don't think it's my responsibility to tell you how to vote. But one thing you got to admire about the guy was that he functioned well under pressure. And what happened as the result of that was this growing respect for him. Now notice verse 7. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? Now you know what he's saying there? He's implying that you must have an independent intuition if you're going to be a good leader. Good leaders are people who have this independent intuition. Nobody else knows what's going to happen. They can't. You can't go and ask, say, you know, what's going to happen here? He can tell you. There's some things that you just got to respond to because of your independent intuition. And isn't it amazing that there's some people who are just able to do that. They just call the right shots and they just make the right decisions because they have this sense about them called independent intuition. All right, number five is found in verse eight. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death and there is no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. Now let me show you what he's, you know what, when you read verse eight, you just kind of get the idea that this person is finite. He said, no man has authority to restrain the wind and nobody has authority over the day of death. There are some things he's saying you just can't do. 
nobody else can do. Now you may be the, you may be the greatest thing that ever hit Bryan County, but you're still finite. And there may be, and you may have the idea, you may be so cocky, you may think that there's just nothing you can't do, but there are a few things you can do. You're still finite. And what he's saying is this, that a good leader is a person who has a humble spirit and recognizes his own limitations. I love it. He's a person who understands where his limits are. He's a person who understands that he may be powerful, but there's some things that he cannot do. And a wise superior is a person who turns his life to the full control of God because he knows he's going to run up against some things he can't do and he's going to meet some questions that he can't answer. Two practical warnings. The first is in verse 8. And the practical warning is this. It is inexcusable to take advantage of those under our charge. Inexcusable. It is inexcusable to take advantage of those under our charge. But verse 9 gives the second practical warning. It's this. Whoever does this hurts himself. Now let me put those two together. A person who has authority and abuses that authority, a person who has command and he prostitutes that command, is, that's inexcusable. And the one that hurts, he's going to hurt when he does that, is himself. I have two thoughts to close this with. The first is this. Hear this well. Our example outlives our achievement every time. Our example outlives our achievement every time. Now let me show you what I mean by that. Most of us put the emphasis on what we do rather than what we are. And most of us put the emphasis on what we achieve and we magnify what we achieve when what we are as a model lives a lot longer than what we accomplish as an individual. For example, when you look back over the lives of the people you remember, you probably don't remember a whole lot they did, but you do remember who they were and what they were. Now Jesus is an example of that. He lived three years and He really didn't do a lot as a matter of fact. And if you added up the accomplishment of this man Jesus, he would be, as the world considered him, considers success, a colossal failure. Had nothing, no died on the cross. But because the, he valued being a model more than being an achiever, as the world saw achievement, he will never be forgotten. Now listen to me carefully. You may never accomplish a whole lot and you may, may, not, be, you know, may not be written in anybody's who's who book as, as regard, with regard to achieving a whole lot in life, but there is something more important than that and that is the model of your life, what you were, who you were. 
Second thought. We need to see a vision of the cycle. Now what's this? What I'm saying. Some of us, you see, what we're, what we're attempting to do is to cycle ourselves out of, a, out of a role of a leader. For example, it's called discipleship. And here's a guy and he takes five or six or ten people under his care and he disciples them for two years. And he is their authority, he is their leader, and he is discipling them. You know what he's doing? He's trying to cycle himself out of a job so that the purpose of that discipleship is to make disciples. And these people leave and they become the authority and they become the leader of someone else and this guy just cycles himself out of a role. It's called parenting. It's called parenting. For what we're doing as parents is to cycle ourselves out of children. See, we're raising these children, or they might become parents. And as we, as we build into their lives the principles and the values of life that are really genuine and biblical, what we're doing then is letting them know how to be a parent, and all of a sudden they become the parents and we're no longer parents. That's the vision of the cycle. So that we understand that what we're about as leaders in every aspect is this, that we might create people who can become leaders and all of a sudden they take over and we fade into the woodwork. It's called getting old. Well, you know, gracefully, joyfully. Now, five characteristics of a good leader. Five characteristics that ought to describe every person here tonight, tonight either at this present moment of your life or what you aspire to be one of these days. Let's pray. Father, for this wonderful study from your word, we give you thanks. We thank you that you teach us how to live in the day-by-day -day mundane life when we're obedient to your word, faithful to it. Now bless this moment of decision, for I pray in Jesus' name. An invitation is an opportunity for you to publicly respond to the voice of God who has spoken to your heart, maybe today or yesterday or tonight, whatever. There are three invitations. An invitation for you to receive Christ as your personal Savior. Let Him be the Lord of your life. Accept Him as your Savior and Lord. Committing your life to Him. Trusting on Him for your salvation to come and join the fellowship of First Baptist Church, to place your life here. It's more than moving our letter. It's placing our life in service for, with God's people. Or perhaps to come tonight to, to rededicate yourself, to recommit yourself to Christ. You're not pleased with the way you live because you know God isn't. And you want to come to make public your, profession of, your uh, rededication of life and confession of sin. We're going to sing a stanza or two. We invite you to come while we sing.